Thank you for joining us for our Renewal City Church podcast. If you're looking for ways to get involved, join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Roxy Theater in Longview. Or find us online at rcclongview.org. We hope you're blessed and that this message finds you well. Acts 15 verse 7 says, After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Peter's one of the apostles, one of the original disciples of Jesus. And he says, Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and they would believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted these Gentiles by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. So now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, no. We believe it's through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved, just as they are. Peter's preaching, that's a bit of a mouthful. Let me break it down for you a little bit. Uh, One, what is Peter talking about? Well, if you recall a few weeks ago, we talked about Peter going to this Gentile's house named Cornelius, and he begins proclaiming the gospel there, and the Holy Spirit falls on them, signs and wonders are manifest, and they all look at each other and think, we weren't expecting this at all. The Holy Spirit's now been poured out on Gentiles as well, so I guess that means they're in. (laughs) Peter's putting into words, really for the first time, some kind of doctrine around salvation. What does it mean? for people to be a part of God's family? What does it mean for people to be saved from their sins by God? And he says, it's through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, by faith that people's hearts are purified. He's contrasting that with what uh, those men from Jerusalem were saying who had come to Antioch and said, well, in order for people to be purified, in order for people to be saved, they must convert to Judaism. We need to switch this out. All right. I would hate to sound weird. I was wondering if you of you were looking at me like I was sounding weird. And I could see people moving around and I thought to myself, something's going on. Something's going on. Uh, All right. So, So, yeah, Peter's contrasting that. We're saved by the grace of God through faith in Christ with the message that had come to Antioch originally. No, you're saved by converting to Judaism, by following a religion. Uh, Peter's really cutting out of Christian theology, the idea of Jesus has done his work plus something that you do equals salvation. Peter's cutting that out entirely, and his emphasis is on the grace of God working through Jesus Christ. So the conversation continues from Peter's remarks. Paul and Silas are talking about, they, they speak up in the in the debate, and they began to share about all the wonders and miracles that were happening while they were traveling around on their first missionary journey, sharing the gospel with the Gentiles. And the point that they're making is that it's as they went out and proclaimed the gospel to the Gentiles, they saw God's power demonstrated in the lives of these Gentile believers. Miracles are happening, signs and wonders are happening. And the point that they're making is that it's God who decided to pour out His Spirit and pour out His grace on these Gentiles. And it seems to be God who is inviting them into the fold of His family, saying, you're now a part of this thing. 
You know, it's God's spirit that's healing people. It's God's spirit that is bringing them to salvation, to belief in Christ without God's spirit giving them any of the commands, asking them to follow all these things. And so the point that Paul and Barnabas are making is if God's going to welcome them into the family, then who are we to add any commands to God's work of reconciliation? This is a point where we really do well to remember that it's God who saves people. It's not us who saves ourselves. It's not the church who saves people by getting them to do certain things. But it is God who saves people by his wonderful and incredible grace that's at work in our world. So the debate in Jerusalem is continuing, and now the Apostle James gets up. James is the brother of Jesus. Uh, This is a person who many scholars would have considered to be uh, like the chairman of the board back in those days, or chief among the apostles in Jerusalem. And uh, and he's ready to chime in with some words uh, uh, to the leaders in Jerusalem, and he sums up his remarks with this phrase uh, found in, in Acts 15, verse 19. Uh, James gets up and he says, look, it's my judgment, therefore, considering everything we've talked about, what Peter said, what Paul and Barnabas have said, what others I'm sure have said in the debate, it's, it's my judgment, therefore, that we shouldn't make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, to abstain from sexual immorality, and from the meat of strangled animals and from the blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times, and it's read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Let's break down James's remarks into two different groups. First off, what is James asking the believers, what is he saying they should do? He says we should write to them, and we should tell them to do four things. They need to stay away from food polluted, by idols, they need to stay away from sexual immorality. They need to stay away from the meat of strangled animals. I know that was top of your list for things to do to become a Christian. And they need to stay away from blood. I usually stay away from blood as much as I can. Anyways, why is he telling them to do this? Is it because this is what the Gentiles must do to be saved? That's not what he says. He says we need to do this because the law of Moses has been read in every city from the earliest times, and it's read every week. What he is telling them, why he is telling them to do it is because the law of Moses is being preached in the cities. Why is James saying this? Which is probably a common question here almost every Sunday. Why is James saying this? I can't follow. I'm just going to fall asleep. Uh, so James knows that in their region from the time of the exile, which is hundreds of years before this. So for centuries now, when Assyria came and invaded Israel and carried everyone away, and then Babylon came and carried away the tribes of Judah, from that time on, the people of God had been cut off from the temple in Jerusalem, their main center of worship. And so now for centuries, what they've done to, be, to feel connected to God is in any town where there was more than a few exiled Jewish families living, they would build a synagogue. They'd build a meeting place. And these families would come together on the Sabbath, worship God in the synagogue, hear the Torah read, and that was how they stayed connected to their belief in God, their faith in God. They stayed connected to their religion uh, through now gathering. Instead of going to Jerusalem a few times a year, they would gather weekly in a synagogue. 
And James is saying that because these are the people, this gathering in the synagogue was now, as the Christians began to, as people began to become uh, followers of Jesus, again, at the beginning, they're all Jewish people. So guess where the church met at the beginning? They would meet in the synagogues. They would meet in the neighborhoods. Jewish people got together where Jewish people got together, and they would meet there. And this is what was happening in most places. Throughout the course of missionary journeys and acts, we begin to see somewhat of a shift in that, where uh, the Jewish people became increasingly hostile to the gospel. And in some cities, they were, the Christians weren't welcome in the synagogue, and they started meeting in other places and in homes and, and things like that. But uh, at the beginning, everything's happening within the context of the Jewish religion. And so what James is trying to say is, how can we, have the Gentile believers come in to be a part of this family that has these customs, these rules, these things that we're following. How can we do these things if we can't agree on at least a few basic things? James feels that it's super important for the Lord's people. He's pointing out to them, look, we can't come together if we can't agree on what to eat. The other part of church back in that day was usually a communal meal. Christians would share a meal. They called it the Lord's Supper. In it, they recognized the death and the resurrection of Christ. They'd come together and have a meal, from what scholars can tell, pretty much every time they gathered for a while. How can we come together and share a meal if some in our group are saying we can't eat certain foods and others in the group are bringing that to the communal meal? That's a problem, right? That's a problem that will divide people. That's a problem that will make things really difficult. How can we be joined together? How can we agree that we're all of one family and, and one people when we have completely differing uh, ideas of what is morally pure behavior towards one another? It talks about this sexual immorality, which uh, because, you know, the room's full of kids, uh, we'll talk about behaving in a way towards one another that is morally pure. If our standards of moral purity are all over the map, how can we come together and people will feel safe and people will feel uh, able to be joined together and unified in any way? What he's saying is because God's come back for one church and because these Gentiles are being grafted into this thing that God's been doing in the children of Abraham for centuries, we're, we, think that we'll, we, we think the best thing to do is to ask these Gentiles to adopt four of the rules that we have from the 600 and whatever it is, 613, I think, commandments of the Old Testament. So the Jewish Christians are following 613 commands. The Gentile Christians come in and they say, we, we don't want to make it hard on them. We're just going to give them four to follow. And then they say, look, they're going to do well to avoid these things that would disrupt our Jewish following brothers and sisters, you know, Torah following, law of God abiding brothers and sisters. So they decide we're going to write a letter to the church, to all the, the, the Gentile converts. We're going to write a letter that outlines this for them. Verse 23, the letter starts off to the Gentile believers in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia and, you know, areas beyond. This is to any Gentile believers. They give greetings they outline sort of the cause of this debate. Some people came out from us. They were telling you that this is what you need to be saved. Um, then they give the practical direction from the letter in verse 28. They write, It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, 
not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You're to abstain from food sacrifice to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You'll do well to avoid these things. Farewell. Pretty brief. Almost a little too brief. Uh, one, they, the people came from Antioch with a really big question, right? What must we do to be saved? This letter doesn't explicitly answer that question. They say, these are the things we're asking you to do. You're going to do well to avoid these things. Farewell. They didn't answer the question. But here's where we should remember. This letter is actually sent back to the churches with Paul, with Barnabas, and then with two other men, Silas and and Judas, a couple of people who came from the apostles to Jerusalem. It's sent back with these men to testify that, to the truth that, that this letter really is from the apostles, as well as to answer questions and give further explanation and talk about it. And so even though the text of the letter doesn't include it, we know the letter is being sent with the context of all of these debates that they had, the remarks that Peter made about this is about God's grace at work, demonstrated in people's faith, what Paul and Silas said about, look, the Gentiles, or Paul and Barnabas said, the Gentiles have been included into this thing. God has poured his spirit on them. He's working in their lives. He's bringing them salvation. And James' remarks, we don't want to make it hard for people who are turning to God. All of this came with the letter. You know, one of the main issues that we have when we read our New Testament, uh, most of the New Testament is letters that were sent to people. And one of the issues we have when we read it is we can read the text of the letter, but we are missing the people who those letters were sent with that we're supposed to be there to explain and answer questions and do all of that. And so, so often when we're trying to dig into the New Testament, it's kind of, it would be like them reading the letter that was sent to Antioch and they don't have anyone to explain it. And you're going, wait, the question was, how are we saved? We feel like you just gave us some practical advice about how to do well and then said farewell. We're looking for more. Anyhow, uh, this is the letter. So um, they don't really answer the question. But it would seem that their debate and the remarks that were made in it that are then recorded in Luke's account of Acts gives us some more insight into what they're thinking. Now, if you have any concerns that I'm making too much about the idea that we're saved by faith and far too little about the four specific requirements that the Gentiles were asked to follow here, let's move on now to Acts chapter 16 and let's see how Paul as an apostle, let's see how his experiences in Jerusalem, the debates that he was a part of, all the stuff that God's been doing in his life up to this point, let's see how this turns out in his next missionary journey. Introduction's done. We're moving on. Uh, Let's pray. Lord, I really believe that you want us to grasp a hold of some truth of your character, some truth about the way that you're working in humanity today, that is going to leave us changed, leave us different than we were when we walked in. Holy Spirit, I believe that you don't want to waste any time and that each one of us has uh, so far to go in becoming more like our Savior Jesus. And so we just invite you uh, to work in our hearts through these stories, through this text, and make us more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. So in Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas go out on a missionary journey together. Now, I I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, what happened to Barnabas, right? 
because you're careful students of the word. And as soon as I said Paul and Silas, you were like, what? What happened to Barnabas? Well, Paul and Barnabas were going to go out on missionary journey together, uh, but they have a severe disagreement about someone who had gone with them and left them on the first trip, this guy named John Mark. And Barnabas is like, I really think John Mark deserves another chance. And Paul is like, John Mark is unreliable. We're not taking him. And so these two who had been, you know, in cahoots with each other, leading the church for years, end up going their separate ways as they do a second missionary journey. Uh, They both kind of scatter. They both are covering territories that they had visited before, churches that they'd planted before, and then branching out into maybe some new territories. But they go separate ways. And Paul ends up taking this guy, Silas, who he probably met there in Jerusalem for the first time during the debates about what does it mean to be saved. And, And he brought him back to Antioch with the letter. Silas was one of the explainers. And so Paul and Silas end up going out on a second missionary journey. So while Paul and Silas are ministering in a a city called Philippi, this is the middle of Acts chapter 16, uh, there's this this female servant, this female slave there, who has an evil spirit inside of her, and she's harassing them, taunting them for, uh, for days. And finally, Paul gets so annoyed with this woman that he turns to her, he rebukes the spirit, casts it out of her, and, um, and so she stops the taunting. Uh, but then this woman's owners become very annoyed uh, because it, apparently, in addition to giving her an ability to, to severely taunt people, uh, the spirit had also given her some kind of profitable ability to predict the future. And now that the spirits are gone, she can't predict the future anymore. They feel like they've lost some income. Uh, clearly, this is happening in a very different time and place than uh, our modern American setting. Uh, but they're upset about the loss of income, so they have Paul and Silas arrested, and they're claiming that these two have caused an uproar in the city. Uh, and we'll start reading in, in 16, verse 22. Uh, you're probably just a page over from where you've been at in verse 15, or chapter 15. Verse 16, 22 says, The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. This is sounding like some of those nightmares you have, you know. <laughs> stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. I think the first rendition of the comic had the, the stripped and beaten with rods, but it was censored by parents, so it's not in there anymore. Um, they have them thrown in prison, and, and the jailer was commanded to guard them very carefully. And so when he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in stocks. So here's Paul and Silas. They're badly beaten. They've been thrown into prison, and, and this is a bad day. I, I've never been uh, beat up, um, but I know I have a hard time getting out of bed like a day after doing some yard work. And so I just can't imagine how they're feeling. And, and, how, and they're sitting there thinking to one another, boy, this mission trip has really gone sideways. And, you know, Silas is, is maybe, you know, blaming Paul, like, couldn't you have just put up with the taunting for one more day? You just had to cast the spirit out of her and get us in trouble. And Paul's probably saying to Silas, this kind of thing never happened with Barnabas. I mean, he w- we wouldn't have gotten caught. You're slow, Silas. You're slow. And, and I came back for you, and now here we both are. No, that's not actually, that's not actually what happened. You read the story. Find out what happened. Verse 25. Are Paul and Silas fighting with one another? No. At about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. 
and the other prisoners were listening to them. Think about what kind of a response this is. What kind of a response is it when your life has gone that far sideways and you find yourself late at night, not crying yourself to sleep in your pillow, but singing hymns and praying. This is one of those situations where when things look really bleak, the faithful response is to pray and to sing. Kids that are filling in the blank, that's number two. I think we went right over number one. As I said, I lost, I thought I'd have all control with my phone, but the technology had other ideas today. When things look bleak, pray and sing. This kind of response is a response that comes from a heart that is fully convinced and a mind that is fully convinced. Despite what I've experienced, despite how I'm feeling right now, I am confident that somewhere behind all of this, in the deepest core of reality of the universe, there is a loving God who cares for me and loves me and has somehow got this all figured out. Somehow he's going to bring good out of this circumstance. And so while it may seem like what I should be doing right now is freaking out, losing my mind, calling my lawyer, what I'm going to do is pray and sing praises to God. Paul and Silas are praying there, midnight in the prison. Prisoners are listening. I don't know if they're good singers or not. You can find that out when we are all together in the presence of God one day. Verse 26, suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And at once all the doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. We've got young people in the room. How many of you young people and old people, you can answer as well. How many of you ever played like dodgeball or capture the flag? Dodgeball, capture the flag. Uh, I do a little bit of substitute teaching in the Kelso School District. My all-time favorite is subbing for PE because that's a sweet gig. Go play with kids all day. Um, and you don't have to grade them when you're a sub. So this is, this is, anyways, when you're playing dodgeball and the, and the jail starts to fill up, as the jail fills up, what do the kids want to see? They want to see a jailbreak, right? And so suddenly you're the most powerful person in their lives. Because it just a single word. Jailbreak's one word, right? Any English teachers? I think it's one word. We're going to stand on that. Jailbreak is one word. With one word, you can change the fortunes of an entire classroom. Imagine this earthquake. What are the prisoners experiencing? I mean, the earthquake happens and they're probably like, oh no. And then the doors are flinging open and the chains are falling off and they're like, oh yes. This is amazing. Jailbreak. And then everybody runs and, and chaos ensues and all that. Well, verse 27, when the jailer woke up and when he saw all the doors open, he drew his sword and he was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. Talk about a professional failure. This guy wakes up. The doors are all open. He's like, oh, no. What's happened? I've lost everyone. He pulls out his sword. He's ready to fall on it. Because he's suddenly hopeless. I, I imagine it, his life was probably on the line. It, probably in those days, escaped prisoners meant you were, uh, you were done. He's about to fall on his sword, but then Paul shouted, verse 28, Don't harm yourself, we're all here. First miracle is the earthquake. Here's the second miracle. 
The doors open, the chains fall off, not a single prisoner runs free. This is the equivalent. This is not the equivalent, but I'll say it's the equivalent of, of someone yelling jailbreak in a game of capture the flag and everyone's like, nah, that just doesn't seem fair. We're just going to stay right here. These people worked so hard to capture me. I'm not going anywhere. Paul shouts, don't harm yourself. We're all here. You know, only God can cause a kind of earthquake that opens doors, drops chains, and doesn't leave anything falling in and killing anyone. And only God can cause a kind of transformation in a prisoner's heart in such a way that when the doors open and the chains fall off, the prisoner says, out of care for the jailer, says, I'm not going anywhere. I'm just going to sit right here because the last thing I want to do is get someone in trouble. The jailer calls for lights. He rushed in and he fell trembling before Paul and Silas. And then he brings them out and he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Verse 31, they replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you, and your, and you will be saved, you and all of your household. This jumps out to me because if I'm reading Acts all together, as we're probably meant to read it, and I've just finished up chapter 15, one thing I might think Paul would say when the jailer says, what must I do to be saved? I might think Paul would say, well, that's a great question. We actually, I was a part of a really big debate. All the major people were there in Jerusalem. We talked it through. We decided there's four things you got to do to be saved. <laughs> Don't eat strangled animals. <laughs> Don't eat idle meat. Stay away from blood and behave yourself. <laughs> but Paul knows that wasn't the point of the letter. That wasn't what we decided. What are the things that you must do to be saved? No, that was talking about unity in the church. How do we walk together? How do we, how do we live together as the people of God without confusion and, and defrauding and taking advantage of one another or creating uh, reasons to fight and contention? Paul knows that the point of the letter was an acceptance by the church that it is the grace of God working through the faithfulness of Christ to offer up his life that has brought humanity to salvation. And so the word is given, believe in this truth. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that in the man Jesus Christ, God has done something remarkable and new in humanity. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your whole household. It's our third fill in the blank. Um, Paul really believes that this is the only thing required. This is why he writes in his later letters. In, in Galatians chapter 5, he says, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Imagine that the next time someone's like, what counts? What counts in my Christianity? The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. He writes in Ephesians chapter 2, it's by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's a gift from God. And it's not by your works so that no one can boast. Salvation has been given to you. God has you covered. He's no longer counting your sins against you. You might say it like this. I, I love saying it like this. Uh, the scriptures paint Christ as, as the Lamb of God who was slain from the foundation of the world. So before time ever began, somehow in the way that a God who lives outside of time can only understand, or maybe like 
Christopher Nolan, he probably understands it too. But somehow outside of time, before you were ever born, before time began, before Adam ever fell and you were lost in the fall in the garden, somehow before any of that happened, you were rescued in Jesus Christ. Before you'd done a single, before anyone had done a single thing, God had rescued humanity in Jesus Christ. This is not counting on us doing the right things. It is counting on a God who's been committed to rescuing people again and again who do the wrong things. Verse 32, they spoke the word of the Lord to him, to the jailer, and then to all of his house. And at that hour of the night, the jailer took them and he washed their moons, or moons, washed their wounds, and then immediately him and his whole household were baptized. I'm imagining like he's got, he's got the water, he's cleansing their wounds, and I don't know exactly how baptism worked in it, but somehow he's like, oh man, there's all this water, we're believing in Jesus. Can, can we be baptized too? Is there any reason that we can't just all do the thing? And Paul's like, yeah, let's do it. So they get baptized. The jailer then brings them into his house. He sets a meal before them. I'm assuming this wasn't a part of his normal job duties. He sets a meal before them, feeds them in his house, and he's filled with joy because he'd come to believe in God, he and his whole household. The point of this series is to look at the lives of the first century believers, to see how they lived, to see how they shared the gospel with the world around them, and to become, be inspired by that in how we interact with the world around us. I, I read this story, I think, man, may we be people who speak the word of the Lord in such a way that it fills people's hearts with joy. May we not fall into this temptation that has plagued the Lord's people from the, from the very beginning of time. This temptation to burden people with the commands that we are following. This temptation to say, you need to do this and this and this, and then we'll know that Christ's work really works in your life. I think so often we fall into those tendencies because we really want some element of control of this whole thing. Which is, which is, and if you think about it, it's idol worship in, in a sense. There's God who is God, He's in control, and we're trying to replace Him with something else. And the minute that we are wanting to put ourselves in that place where we get to say how it is that God's grace is at work in the lives of people, the minute that we begin to try to define our expectations for how people are going to behave, who God is reconciling, we're forgetting that it's God who draws, it's God who saves, it's God who is the judge ultimately, and we're putting ourselves in that place ourselves. We want to be the kinds of people who the doors open, the chains fall, and we stay because we love others. We want to be the kinds of people who live holy, moral, upright lives because we understand how our actions and our decisions impact people around us and spread evil in the world. We want to be the kinds of people who will look at somebody, no matter what they've done or where they've come from or what they're struggling with, and are convinced that before they were ever lost in the sin of humanity, God reconciled them through the power of Christ. 
And in, in many ways, what we're trying to convince people is to come back to who they are meant to be from the beginning of time. I, that's all we've got time to talk about. So um, let's pray. We had some small group discussion questions for today, but I think we'll, we'll skip that in the interest of getting to the Lord's table together. Uh, Holy Spirit, we just acknowledge you as present here with us. Uh, Lord God, you are the God who inhabits the entirety of his creation. As the psalmist says, there is not a single place we could go to hide from your presence. And so we just declare today that you are here. You're as near to each of us as the next breath that we breathe. God, we thank you for your presence in our lives. Holy Spirit, would you guide us to, uh, to those practices and to those beliefs that are going to be fruitful for our salvation and fruitful for the salvation of others around us? If there's anything today that we need to let go of, we ask that you would help us to let go of it by the grace of God. If there's anything today that we need to become more convinced of, we ask that your spirit would speak to our spirit and convince us of those things. So often we are like the blind leading the blind, and we so desperately need to see, and only your Holy Spirit can open our eyes. And so we just ask you would open the eyes of each heart in this room today to our need for you and to the incredible gigantic monstrosity of your work in humanity. You are so good and you are so capable of saving us. And we just receive your salvation again today. In Jesus' name, amen. We typically close every service at the, at the Lord's table with some more worship. And uh, each week the table's set with some bread that represents Christ's body because uh, those of us who believe in Jesus believe that there was a man, Jesus, whose body was broken as a sacrifice for us. And as that body was broken and laid into the earth, three days later, he rose again with a transformed and resurrected body. And we believe that's our destiny as well. And so we eat this bread, receiving it as, as life to ourselves, as life to the, to the body we have now and in hope for transformation that will happen one day. And each week we gather around the cup that's filled with the fruit of the vine, the grape juice that represents the blood of Christ, a sacrifice. Paul explained what Christ did in establishing a new covenant with humanity in this way. He said God is doing something new now in humanity. He is no longer counting men's sins against them. No longer counting it against us. So you think about every way that you've fallen short in life, every way that you've fallen short this last week, every way that maybe you've fallen short today. Everything from giving in to the impulses that you know are not fruitful or good or leading you to God, to the subtle thoughts or attitudes or, or, or biases in your own heart that lead you 
to dark places in regards to how we look at others or the people that God has called his children. And we know that that one day, the man Jesus Christ hung on a cross and died and poured out his blood for humanity. Sealing a new covenant between God and humanity where God no longer would count those things against us. And if God's not counting them against us, we can't count it against ourselves and we can't hold these things over one another. We are forgiven. So we come to the table each week in hopes and in, 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 uh, in faith that Christ has done it all. And it is only ours to receive what he's done, to believe in what he's done. It's as simple as tearing off a piece of that loaf, dipping it in the cup, and just receiving it into yourself. It's as simple as believing in this message, receiving it as true for your life. It really is that simple. And so today, as we come to the Lord's table, I just want to invite you, uh, as as we sing some some more songs in worship, uh, I want to invite you to come up and share in the Lord's Supper. Receive God's grace in your life. Receive salvation. I think sometimes we think of uh, salvation or, or being saved as like like a rescue type thing, like something that happens once. I was I was in trouble, and now I've been rescued. Uh, but now that I'm not in a boat on a stormy sea anymore, I'm not in trouble anymore. And it's just an unfortunate way that English, the English word "save" has has been changed over the years. Uh, there was there was a point uh, in English where "saved" meant that, but it, it also means to be preserved, to be held together. You think of the the British phrase, God save the queen or God save the king. They don't mean the king's in trouble. They mean we want his life and his health and and all that to be preserved for all time. And so, of course, that part of the word is a part that we we forget about. We don't think about it. So our salvation isn't, isn't, uh, I should say it this way, it is being rescued, yes, and it is being preserved. It's something that maybe you can point to a certain point in your life, a prayer that you prayed or a moment you had with the Lord or, or some call that you responded. You would say, that's when I got saved. And I believe, yes, that's true. And it's also true that you were saved by Christ before the world ever began. And that today is another day for him to actively preserve his work in your life. And as often as you have to eat a meal, is as often as you should be receiving God's salvation again and again. And this is why we come to the Lord's table and we're together. So uh, I've gone on too long. Uh, Jesus, we're so grateful for your work. Uh, we receive it today. Uh, I pray that, that each of us would come up to the table today and would just eat of your salvation again. And that we'd be transformed by this holy spiritual food you've given us to eat. In Jesus' name. Amen.